Hello humans, welcome to The Frontline, a leadership and business podcast brought to you by Peregrine Corporate Services, an Isle of Man-based fiduciary provider. My name is Martin Hall, and thanks for listening. In this podcast, we chat to an array of business leaders from different sectors to learn more about them, their market, skill sets, and knowledge. We hope you enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Carol Glover. Thanks for joining me today, Carol. Hi, Martin. How are you? Yeah, very good. Very good. Appreciate your time. So just to provide the listening audience a bit of background, where, where did you grow up? Well, I'm a very uh, proud, like you, very proud Manx person. I grew up in Dukes Road, Douglas, at the bottom of Nobles Park, um, in what I thought was the idyllic childhood everyone had living opposite a park, till I went to live in Middlesbrough, aged 18. Oh, right. What took you to medicine? Um, I went to do um, a business studies degree, um, something I never, ever thought I would do because I had this wonderful upbringing in the Isle of Man with a very sporty dad, um, a super creative mum who was a big on stage performer and four younger sisters. And I wasn't academic at school. I, I think I have a story that's common to many people. I, I don't learn um, things easily and repeat them. I can't pass exams easily, so I never actually thought I would be going anywhere. And then I got the chance in my final year when Douglas High School, where I went, went co-ed. So this dates me a bit. If you find out the year it went co-ed, you'll, you'll know what my last year at school was. Um, and we got a new deputy head who knew I liked reading and used to lend me a lot of books. And he said to me one day, what are you going to do when you finish your A-levels? And I said, well, I'm not really guaranteed to get any A-levels. It's really hard. And he said, I know, but you love reading. And I said, well, and then he said to me, "Um, well, what about a polytechnic? Have you thought about a poly? And I said, no. So he got me some booklets and I had to read through them. And he suggested that as he knew I'd worked a lot throughout my teens, like most kids did at that time in the Isle of Man, because it was booming holiday destination. Um, he said, why don't you do business? So anyway, he made a call. I went off to Teesside Poly. I did business studies for the next four years um, in a very practical environment. I did a year in industry and it changed my life. And that, 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 that you mentioned him picking business studies, was yeah. that something that was of interest at the time or it was more, here's an option, why not give it a go? Um, no, it was, um, you know, my career. I mean, I think one of the things that people often ask me in podcasts is where did you start your career? And I was thinking about that this week. I started my career aged 13 in a place called the Book Centre in Douglas. Now, I don't know how many people remember the Book Centre, but it was um, sort of down past TK Maxx on the other side of the road. Um, I think it might be Esquire's now. I think that was the Book Centre. So 13-year-old Carol used to have a Saturday job there. And for the next few years, I worked in hotels, guest houses, I was head receptionist at a hotel called the Metropole um, down on the front when I was about 16 and mostly the last two years I was in the Isle of Man I probably had five jobs in the summer concurrently. And was that your parents installing you to work or you wanted Um, a a bit of money? I think it was mainly the fact we were poor. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I think it was as simple as that. My dad um, worked, we had five, my dad had five daughters. And part of um, my backstory, and a really important part of it, is firstly, we had a chaotic upbringing. My dad played sport, he worked all the time. My mum was just the most incredible life force, uh, very creative, but she also worked in bars and pubs. I was quite often her glass washer. I mean, my last two years at school in the sixth form, I washed glasses three nights a week in a bar um, to stay at school so but actually when it's your life you think it's normal because it's your life and it's all you know but the great thing about our family was the 
I now know how very lucky we were, and certainly myself and my um, next sister, Jane, who's a professor of neuroscience in Vancouver and Seattle, um, we were brought up by parents who said, you can be anything you want to be as long as you want it enough. And we were brought up with phrases from dad, like, how hard can it be? I mean, my dad played in goal for the Isle of Man for years, and he was only just six foot. He played in goal for Southampton when he was a teenager. Um, he played cricket for the Isle of Man first team for years. He was the Isle of Man backstroke champion in what felt like forever. He desperately wanted a son and got five daughters. So we all decided we're going to be better than any son he's ever going to have. Um, but that was from a mindset perspective, not any other perspective. Um, and we then sort of believed we had this immense self-belief that used to terrify other people, I think, and probably still does. But I think that came from my dad. That sounds like it. Yeah. And I meet people that knew my dad and they know he had this in him because he wanted to be this goalie. And, you know, one of my proudest stories about dad was um, he, he, he took football up again when he was 42. Um, Paul Rose United asked him to play in goal for them. And they had their greatest three seasons, I think. And my dad was not only in goal, but he became the Isle of Man goalie again at oh, age 43. Wow. So... Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah. So I'm obviously quite young at the moment at the stage of my career, if my dad's anything to go <laughs> by. Obviously that drive, yeah, I guess that drive you have yeah. come from there, hasn't it? Yeah. Sure. So, so uni or poly ends, what, where, what, where did your career in working, well, outside of the, the yeah, jobs here? Yeah, the Isle of Man yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Well, you see, I did um, a sandwich degree, and I'm a massive believer in sandwich degrees. And this, what this means to people who don't know this phrase I've is I, phrase. I did, I was going to say, because, like, you know, like, everyone has sandwich degrees. Um, no, they were degrees where you did, I did two years at the poly, and then I did a year in industry. And that year was everything that I had to do in my final um, sort of thesis. Is that more practical stuff? Than yes, totally practical. And then I came back and did specialised in the subjects for my final year. But that year in industry was the turning point of my life um, for this reason. I worked in, a, it was quite funny, another little story that's defined my career. I turn up at Teesside Poly on day one to sign on for business studies. 30, there were 34 on the course. Um, I go in, and, and, and it wasn't that popular a course then. And within, you know, by the time I was in the final year, there were like 200 on it. But 34, I go in the room. And I say, oh, where do the females sign on? And they say, this is the room, you're it. And so I was one female and 33 lads doing business studies. I tell you, it was a long time ago. That also helped me, of course, if you remember my backstory, because this is all playing into everything that mattered. But in that third year, there was a ladies' clothing factory in Stockton-on-Tees that wanted a student and they only wanted a female student so no matter what I wanted to do I was going to the clothing factory and I'm not really big into um, manual dexterity I can't make things I, well I can make things I've just never chosen to make things so I've never really chosen to develop the skills but I had to do everything and the women thought I was useless because I was a student so that helped as well very good for resilience building I did every job generally sweeping the factory floor when everyone had gone home but I really, really, really enjoyed it. And of course, because of all that work I'd done in the Isle of Man, I'd been a cleaner, I'd been a waitress, I'd been a barmaid, I'd been a glass washer. I'm not bothered what I do as long as I'm learning as I do it. And then, um, unfortunately for him and fortunately for me, the production manager of the factory had um, a heart attack unexpectedly. And they were very, very, very busy and they didn't know what to do. And it was like one of these movies where they go, well, get the student to do it. So I got to be the production manager for the factory 
um, aged like 20. Um, and I did it. And we made clothes for the big retailers in the high street of Britain. And I got to start doing all the production planning with retailers for how what clothes they were going to have and when the shipments would come. And when it came to the end of the year, quite a few of them said to me, here's my card, would you like to apply to work for us when you finish your degree? So when I finished my degree, I applied to quite a lot of retailers and had about 11 jobs, job offers. And I decided that I would not go to London where it was so expensive to live. And the reason I'm saying this, because of course it backfired on me. So I went to work for Littlewoods. And I initially went to be on their graduate training program. But Littlewoods had been one of the companies that Bell Reef Fashions, where I worked, had supplied. And when they realized that and took references internally, they put me on a brand new um, development program for regional merchandisers, where they were only taking people with five years experience. Well, I went on that. It was a two-year program, and I finished it in nine months, because so much of it was similar to what I'd done in production planning. And in doing it quickly, I suddenly got moved from Liverpool to London in three months. (laughs) And I'm like, what? What's happened? But I was then told that that in three months' time, there would be one job in Manchester and there were three of us in London. And there's no way I was not having that job in Manchester, hence how quickly I completed all my training. But I went, I did that at Littlewoods, got amazing training. I had a super training guy. Um, and then I got headhunted because I was in stock control and distribution, not the most glamorous thing that anyone's ever done, but I loved it. And I got headhunted to, by Halfords because it was the fastest growing area of, of um, retail, I suppose head officers was how you control your stock, your distribution, your cash flow, where your money's tied up, how you're sourcing things from Asia and all over the world. And they all have different lead times and they all have to be in the shop at the same time. So I went off to Halfords and in three years, I headed up stock control and distribution for the whole of Halfords. I was about 26, I think then. And the training manager from Littlewoods worked for me. Uh-huh. Um, so he and he was a great guy, one of my mates. Yeah, and then just to go know, back to that little word you mentioned there. Yeah, a great, great coach. Was that your first interaction where you kind of looked at that coach mentor type of role and started with, or appreciated that role from? I think what I would have to say about my career is that I have been mentored by amazing people at every stage because I left home at eighteen, and yeah, it's not a big deal. Lots of people do it, but so my f- luck in that. Yeah, uh, look. Do you know what? There's luck, but there's also your own personal skills. The thing that, if you ask anyone who slightly knows me or even knows me, they'll say my number one thing is I talk. I'm a chatterer. In fact, I consider myself to be a good Manx chatterer. I can go to a room of 100 people and make friends without knowing any of them and make friends with 98 of them instantly because I'm so interested in people and I'm genuinely interested in people. And so I've always been generally interested in people. I've always been very curious. So I want to know the answer. So when there's a boss, I will ask the boss the answer. And the boss will say, oh, do you know, no one's ever asked me that before. I'm not really sure. So I will go, where will I find that out? And I will go and find another person. And I would say, Martin, you know, I'm glad you've asked me this question. I would say the number one skill for the future of all of us humans is to be curious because computers can answer a lot of things, but the things they can't answer 
other people and situations will only tell us what we need to know. So in terms of getting mentored, I mean, I also, <laughs> I, was, I was young. I had, my first car was a 1964 Mini that worked about every Wednesday afternoon. I then replaced that with a Fiat 126 where the starter mechanism, if you ever had one, you'll know it, broke regularly. And I used to have to hit the starter motor with a stick and that didn't always work. So I had two guys who were senior managers at Littlewoods who used to give me a lift to work quite often and I would get mentored in the car and I'm glad to think I'm glad to talk about that because I'd forgotten about this and we wouldn't talk about work we would talk about scenarios they'd experienced or what I could look at next or what I might want to do so I think that's very important because my career has been odd. Littlewoods was a very female organization. After I worked for Littlewoods, I worked in very male-dominated organizations, but it never, ever was an issue that I was female. And I've I've reflected on that a lot, and I don't know what the answer to that is because I've always been Carol, and maybe that is the answer because I'm Carol, you know, I'm a misfit maverick, ginger punk inspired, whatever, you know, I, I'm not whatever, I'll be whatever I, I need to be, you know, to to get the best out of others and get the best out of myself. Yeah, right. So the Halfords, you mentioned about the growth you yeah. did there, how, how did that sort of end and where move on from there? Um, yeah, well, this is an interesting uh, part of my story, really, because I did that, jo- uh, got that job, and then I had this famous sort of life story where the um, chief exec of Halfords and the parent company, uh, Burma Castrol, wanted me to apply to be head of buying, which is like the blue ribbon job in a company and I, in a retail business. And I'm like, no, um, you know, I'm not creative. So they um, twisted my arm right up my back, actually, to have some psychometric testing. And it told me lots of things about myself that I really didn't realize was my skill set. And that would be a tip I would give to people. I don't think people walk welcomingly into psychometric testing, but on the three occasions I've had it done in my career, it's been massively, massively eye-opening. So, um, you know, what did I learn about me? Um, Yeah, that's the phrase, what can you learn about you? Because learning about you is probably the most important thing you can do when you want to, A, work and be a a good leader. And more importantly, to have strong emotional intelligence. You need to know yourself. So it turns out I was creative and I got to age 28 before I realized that I was creative Although earlier in this um, this podcast, I mentioned my mum had been highly creative. So flipping heck, why wouldn't I have been? Mm-hmm. And I'd appeared on the stage and I danced and I love dancing. It's my favorite favorite thing, if my knees will allow it. But at Halfords, um, yeah. So the other thing that came out really, really strongly for me um, was that it said that I was very interested in people. I was interested in what made them tick. And I was interested in how to connect with them to get the best out of them. So age 28, someone knew that I was going to make a great coach and mentor one day. And you know what? I've just realized that this very second. So thank you, because I didn't think about that before. Now, that was in the 1980s. In 1991, a guy called Daniel Goleman wrote the book Emotional Intelligence, and it was an instant bestseller, and it dominates leadership thinking and human thinking. And back in, you know, the 80s there, um, I had testing that said that I had high emotional intelligence, you know, sort of like, ooh, that's probably why I've had all those 20, 26 leadership roles since in many, many different industries. Because of that emotional intelligence, it's, it's interesting listening to that 
that all along you've had great mentors or coaches that I, I asked the question about whether it was luck because it's I don't think it is because yeah. you just you just seek whether it's knowledge or information yes. you therefore yeah. find those leaders and mentors you do uh, just as like if everyone's I guess someone had 10 bad jo- 10 jobs and said all the bosses were yeah all bad then there's the themes themes there's a theme there just so just like the theme you find good leaders that you know yeah yeah and you find your people, don't you? Yeah, you yeah. find those people that you get on with. And when you do find those people that you get on with, whether they're the boss, whether they work for you. I mean, I've learned as much from people who work for me, probably more than I've learned from any of my bosses. But I'm also the sort of person who would go to the chief exec of Halford's, you know, age 26 and say, could I have a quick word with you, please? Yeah, yeah. Because the other thing I want everyone to remember from this is every single one of us is a human being. And every single one of us has within us this um this pleasure of helping other people and if i ask in a nice way the chief executive of halford something um he will help me and i start from the position that i believe he will help me and i think to go back to the point about being inquisitive and asking the questions i think i'm of a similar nature and I, i think that's born out of we've both talked before this about not particularly being a particularly academic at school mm that therefore you have to ask questions to get yeah. the answers and therefore it's just a comfortable thing to do where other people find asking questions uncomfortable because they, they you know, maybe feel that if it, it's a stupid question, etc. but we've just come from background, well, I need to know, so I ask the question. Well, I, I have to give you a little example of that when it happened to me because, of course, I was head of buying for Halfords and I have no idea how a car works and I don't want to have any idea how a car works because that was not what I was employed for. I had buyers who knew all that. But I remember one day I went to the Ferodo Brake Factory and I think it was Chapel on Lafrith in Derbyshire with the head buyer for um, car parts and he was, you know, a nerd on cars and that's all I need to say because I worked with a lot of them. And there was something t- to do with... Um, a brake disc, and they slightly changed the design of it. And they basically made the phrase, and we've changed the design of it. And everyone was sort of nodding sagely, and that was it. And I said, why have you done that, and what exactly have you done? And they answered me, and there was sort of the usual, what I I get used to, the uncomfortable shuffling behind me about why I'm even asking that. Because at this point, I then say, what exactly does a brake disc do? Which is, you know, which I don't care, because I don't know. And if I don't know, you know, why is that important? What does a brake disc do? But when I went outside to the car to leave with the buyer, he said to me, I wondered why they changed that design. And I said, well, why didn't you ask then? But that was a day that I learned that people don't ask, Martin. Um, And I will always ask because I have a little unsolved something to fix, not to fix, to know. And the amount of great ideas I've had by asking a question out of naivety or being unsure and come up with something that's really, really taken myself, the team or the organization forward, that's how it works. And that, yeah, I'd say, like you say, that thing. That's always a tip for people is just to ask. Don't, yeah. don't feel it's stupid. And do it in a nice way. Yeah. And you know what? You'll probably make a mate of the person at the same time, and then you've got someone else to help you. Yeah. And the other part of this is they will ask you something one day, and you will answer them something they've yeah. always wanted to know. Yeah, exactly. So, health at days ends. Where, where would? I presume that was obviously in the UK still. Yeah. Did you then come back to the island? Yeah, um, this is this is one of the, you know, those moments in my career that were very defining. Um, my mum died very suddenly, age 60. In fact, it was 30 years ago last week. And I suddenly felt that everything that I'd done and was doing didn't matter 
because I no longer had mum and my mum and dad had been fundamental to me in everything that went on. And I had my um, younger sisters on the island and my parents had divorced and I wanted to be be home and here. And I, I never, when I was 18, like many, many 18 year olds, I was hanging off the back of the boat saying what I thought was goodbye for the last time to the Isle of Man. So I never, ever thought I'd come back. So I came, I wanted to come back. And so at that time, I was running Halfords. I'd been running Halfords Automotive Business in the UK. I had the boot. We'd been taken over by Boots the Chemist. I was um, just being promoted to a business general manager with Boots, and I was being sent to Harvard for six months to do an um, an MBA in um, in retail. Uh, to start studying for an MBA, and then Mum died, and I just thought, you know, none of this matters. I just something there was a hole and I needed to do something so I wrote to the man who owned ShopRite Derek Nicholson and I sent him my story and I said have you got any opportunities that I might be able to help you with and um, I met with them and they offered me a role and I didn't know at that time they were opening a chain in Scotland so most of their senior people from the island had moved to Scotland so I came to the Isle of Man made a start here and then ended up running the Isle of Man business of ShopRite while the Scottish business was there and then I ended up becoming the marketing director for Scotland as well because that's how it works (laughs) with with dynamic businesses and I love that Um, I then um, took the strange decision to go and work in the government. Well, in hindsight, strange, because I'd had such a corporate career. Um, Isle of Man government, and I I was a chief exec in there for nearly five years. Um, What made you, because it's very much different background against government, what... What was the thought process when you decided to go there? Something different? I I felt I knew what I was doing very well. And you and I, you know, have talked about growth mindsets and the need to learn a lot. And I I felt I'd stopped learning and I felt I had an opportunity to learn. Um, It was the Department of Tourism and Leisure. So it was, you know, things that were still commercial, quite commercial. Um, It was, you know, the buses, the heritage railways, tourism, the villa, the sports, and of course, I'm a big fan of the arts and sports, so that was great. Yeah. And of course, the TT races, and you know, I was saying to you earlier that I had experience of promoting Formula 3000 racing around the streets of Birmingham when I was at Halfords. So the TT was probably something I was more obviously qualified to be involved with, although people really didn't know that. Um, but I, I would be lying if I said I found it easy. It's the most difficult thing I've ever done in my career, working right. in the public sector culture. Okay, um, it's the culture, that's yeah it's because I'm an entrepreneur and so I act in organizations like an entrepreneur and you know in in corporate cultures that can scare some people I mean in the modern world it's viewed as highly desirable and it's probably the number one skill set for business at the moment which is why I coach so many people in it um however in that then uh, I just wanted to make change and do things differently and in an organization that is essentially for for good reason quite slow moving so I found that very difficult and then I had again some personal issues because my dad died very suddenly just before the centenary of the TT literally weeks before and the centenary was the most amazing and difficult event as well um, as it turned out and it all it shook me it shook me a lot and and I never really got back on my feet from that because as I say I probably being honest knew I didn't really fit in I describe myself as a maverick or a misfit these days you know my culture didn't 
didn't um, work there. So I then took a year off and I did a lot of voluntary work um, with Age Concern and, and I supported the wonderful chief exec there, Penny Crichton, because I wanted the opportunity. I mean, I'd worked for like 30 something years nonstop. So I wanted the opportunity to see what else I had in me and see what else I could do. And I did that. And then um, it's almost like, no, it's not like four weddings and a funeral, but I went to a funeral and I met Derek Nicholson, my old great boss and friend. And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing voluntary work and whatever. And he said, would you like to do some projects for me? And I said, I don't know. And he said, no, go on. So I went back, did some projects. And then I ended up, typically for Derek, I then ended up running two things in his, you know, wider organization that I had no background or qualifications in. But you know what? That's almost my favorite thing, because doing something, how hard can it be? Remember my dad's phrase? Um, And the challenge of it, it's great. So... That obviously through all those jobs, Mm. met many leaders and mentors, which led you to do Mm. what you do today, day to day. So perhaps to give uh, listeners just a general oversight, when you're looking at coaching and mentoring, how would you how would you define them differently? Yeah, people are clear. They're very different, and it's very important that we understand why they're so different. So I would say, firstly, today I coach senior leaders and I mentor young startup business people. So what is coaching? Coaching for someone who's a big chatterbox is almost like climbing Everest in flip-flops because in coaching, I'm there to listen. A good coach is there to listen. What you're doing in coaching is you are supporting or you're co-creating the unlocking of potential within your client that is buried within them, that is being dominated by other things or that is being limited because of beliefs, values, and experiences. So in coaching, we question, we do um, active questioning, and we listen, 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 because our clients actually have all of their own answers. They have the answers. We just have to help them realize that they've got the answers. So people who come for senior leadership coaching, let me give you um, one of the big surprises to me in in the Isle of Man is I thought I would be coaching entrepreneurs but because I'm a maverick maker, and that's what I call, call myself, and that I'm different, and I'm very strong at thinking differently um, in my own career, I get a lot of lawyers, accountants, bankers, and people in sort of regulatory positions as senior leaders, because they want to learn to be better leaders. Because all too often in the island at the moment, people are specialists at things, or professionals, and then they found their own firm and their firm grows and they get this this um, tension between what they are specialist at and the need to lead their team. And that quite often can lead to um, a lot of stress, uh, pressure. They have no time. They start to prioritize their business over their family, their interests, their loved ones. And therefore, they want to know how to get the balance back in their life. Mm-hmm. And so that is what I work with them on. And it's it's not it, 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 it's it's neither easy nor hard. It is bespoke. I will work with a client on a couple of sessions. It'll be like a switch is flicked because they've worked out exactly where their problem is. Or I will work with someone who's had a very long-term, what we call a limiting belief, that has been um, inside them since before the age of seven. That's usually the case. That's, that's psychology. That's not me saying that. And therefore, it's like unpeeling an onion. Yeah, right. 
and we have to and, I, and so I have to sit and think of more and more and more questions to get the next layer off the onion yeah, right. but in the end the person gets to the heart of their onion and you get this this moment this this um, transformation this transformational shift and they absolutely get it but they do get it it just takes a different amount of time yeah. so it can be a long process it can be a short process you have absolutely no idea as a coach when you start right what is going to trigger something but it, it is going to take them into a new place and then what i can say martin is that they don't people don't go back because they've moved into a new a mindset shift yeah. and they're now in that new place and um, i have a, an accountant i know well who's very kindly given me public references on the isle of man which is quite hard because it's a very confident coaching people is very confidential i'm a um, an emcc senior practitioner i have a code of ethics i have a code of practice but I have um, a person who's an accountant I coached and after two sessions they probably doubled their performance right, okay. and they can't forget it and they, they sort of say, keep saying to me it's like magic and I'm like no you were like magic yeah, I just yeah. asked you some questions like now mentoring mentoring is the sort of thing you often get at work so you work for someone who freely shares their knowledge and information with you and in doing that they are giving you examples from their own career i think that's the best mentoring that's what i try to do i don't believe in telling people right and wrong ways to do things you know i'm very much a leader who has come from my using my own strengths to full advantage and playing down my own weaknesses and surrounding my not surrounding myself but making sure i have people around me who will mitigate my weaknesses i don't need to be great at at, you know some of the things that I know I'm not very good at mm. I need someone else to be great at those for me so of interest some some people uh, feel they do need to be great at things and they end up diluting so yes really, yeah. I absolutely do think that I think we're in the world now of strengths based everything and I want to give you and um, uh, I, I know the answer to this because it's a very very long time ago I went to work for Littlewoods and I was very lucky because it was um it was in um, the 80s, and a lot of leadership theory had come out in the late 70s when I was a student as well. And, it, and what they were saying were things like, um, there was a guy called F.W. Taylor who way predated the 1980s, but he had ways of increasing productivity, and there were right ways to do things, and there were wrong ways to do things. And people say to me, what is the biggest difference about being a leader today? Well, back in the 80s, they used to tell you, the, this is the right way, and this is the wrong way and as um, um, a misfit disruptive person I probably had the Carol way all the time uh, but most people didn't most people had very much the boss said and this is the way we do it and that's it um, what you do now is you let people work and flow to their strengths and when they when they use something they're passionate about that they're good at that they really enjoy doing they can do massively increased performance rather than making them do sort mm. of grunt work and crap that they hate mm. so it's all about how you put your team together how you assemble your team and as a leader um, and a mentor it's knowing the strengths of each person around you and are they complementary and identifying the gaps needed to deliver at the end of the day mm. but I really feel strongly that teams in the modern world there's someone who's called the leader but they're not the leader the leader can be anyone in the team depending on the topic and who's got the strength yeah, okay yeah yeah so then you mentioned sort of back when it was this way back in the the day yeah yeah, yeah. 
So now looking at the present climate we've just gone through yeah. and the challenges that poses, uh, because again, what might have worked six months ago doesn't today because of COVID yeah. and the challenges of whether you made redundant or your job's yeah. under fire or you have to work from home. How, yeah. how are you finding that in your role and what you do day to day? Yeah, well, you know, today I um, do some consultancy, I coach, I mentor, uh, I particularly mentor startups in the Isle of Man, and they've had a really tricky time. Um, but it's not really tricky, they've had an existential crisis time, I would say. So for small businesses, you know, there is a lot of small businesses that their um, revenue stream has dried up completely overnight, and that's an almost impossibility. The first thing I want to say to everybody in the current climate is that is nothing that is going on has been caused by you or anything you have done this has been caused by the single biggest disruptor probably in in well in history um, or close to being in history and certainly in the 20th and 21st century I would say close to other than a world war probably we have got this big big disruptor and it's changed everything period. So for small businesses, the key thing that I've been trying to uh, mentor and, and encourage people into is that word pivot, which has been a huge word. Now, a lot of people have used the word pivot during the whole COVID-19. I've been using the word pivot a long time. I'm an, a massive pivoter. You know, if there are two choices and you take one and it's not right, with a growth mindset, you pivot and take the other. And you just keep pivoting. And it doesn't matter, as long as you have a final destination or a vision in mind, it doesn't matter how many times you pivot, if you're going to get there, and it's going to be what you want. Um, thinking differently about the way you've done everything and thinking about who your client is. And the other one is using those great strengths to keep you motivated for small businesses. I think that's been really, really, um, really important. Um, how do you, like when you look to, or educating people to pivot. Yeah. The natural, I think the natural instinct is when you, someone's going down a path and it's like, yeah. you maybe you want to go another, it, it might not confidence and might be uh, a belief that they were going down the wrong road and therefore confidence about their decision earlier yeah. to go down this road is challenged. Yeah. How do you teach them not to, to take that as a knock or a... It's a learning, Martin. Right. You and I have talked a lot about my growth mindset. You know, I am a huge growth mindset person. In fact, I have what I call a maverick mindset. I have an extreme growth mindset. I've been down thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of wrong paths in my career, but I've learned something along the way yeah. every single time. And if the, learning the is, lesson, if yeah. the learning is, this isn't the way I was meant to go, that's one less option for me in yeah. the future yeah. because I know that that doesn't work for me. But going to the right a bit and, you know, and then making a left turn does work for me yeah. because it works for me. But you know what? For you, the left path might be the right one. Mm. So we all have to learn our own confidence, our, our own way some to pivot. Might see it as fa failing, so that's just human yeah. instinct, I guess. There is no failing. There is yeah. no failing. Just you know, we, we, we've talked about this feedback. You get the feedback. The feedback is part of your learning. Mm. Um, the number one thing that I work with small businesses on is growth mindset. I'm obsessed with growth mindset and I'm on a mission to get the Isle of Man, everyone in the Isle of Man, to, to um, em embrace a growth mindset where we learn as we go. We we see, you know, we see a challenge as an opportunity. We all move forward together. 
Um, however, just at the moment, getting any but just just getting to equilibrium would be a good place. Yeah. So you know, we've got people working at home at the moment, and it seemed like quite a nice idea, and it seemed pretty convenient for our um, you know our, our home life and ha- our kids. But you know, there are challenges about staying motivated, being focused, knowing what your priorities are, and also feeling connected and communicated with. Because this COVID is not going away anywhere. This whole world pandemic is not going away in a hurry. And so people becoming disconnected, not even from work, from, from society and communities, it's, that is a big risk and a big, a big concern. So I would like every, anyone who's listening to this to think about that. If you're starting to feel disconnected in any way, ask about it, talk about it, right. contact the boss about it. Because it's okay. It's not surprising that you'll feel disconnected. Um, The ultimate disconnection, of course, and you mentioned it, is losing your job. And number one, this is not your fault. Um, And also, number two, I left my job in the government and took a year off because I felt lost and I felt hurt and I was struggling. That is what you will feel. So it's not abnormal to feel that. It's part of a process that you'll be going through. But there is going to be a lot of help and support to help people gain new skills, learn new skills. I'll be on a mission to help people learn about growth mindsets and how we can get skills for the future. And I'm working with the charity Quing on that because it's all about the connect word. At home, you need to reconnect. If you've lost your job, you have to connect to something because one of the biggest risks to people losing their job is they will feel disconnected. And that is not a good, healthy place to be. And the government, I know, is very conscious of this. The Chamber of Commerce, I'm a director of that, is conscious of it. And now this charity is conscious of it. But everyone's got mates. Everyone's got family. Turn to those people whether they've lost their job or not, what you will learn is that you are loved and that people want you to succeed. And it may not be today and it may not be this week or this month. Yeah. So I was just going to ask about the volunteer side. You mentioned yeah. a number of years ago you did volunteer work. Has yeah. that always been a core part of what you've tried to... Um, it's the number one learning that I took from going to Age Concern because I'd been a careerist and well, careerist, probably not a careerist in a sense that I thought I was going to have this career and be a leader and run big businesses and run amazing things. But I'd work, work, worked a lot. And I talked to you about I played sport until, you know, a lot in my younger life. So that was my my release valve. But I was talking to someone who's been very big in Manx sport when I left the government and um, a big friend of my dad's, Jeff Caron, who was the head of the sports council for years and he said to me carol have you thought of volunteering and he put me in touch with the manx gateway drama group a drama group for people with learning difficulties and i helped to take that for eight years and it has been the most it was the most joyous lovely thing to do every thursday night at center 21 no matter what day i'd had at the office i would get hugged by at least 20 people in a life that Carol had that sadly no one usually really hugged her much at all (laughs) so it was just fab and I now know that getting hugged secretes oxytocin so it's a good chemical for me to have I helped break through breast cancer but I helped them do difficult things so when they decided they wanted to make a great big pink ribbon on the side of Snaefell they said Carol will do that and I'm like how hard can that be when they wanted to arrange a dip in Douglas Harbour on January the 1st every year um 
Carol can do that. How hard can that be? So I used to do stuff like that. So that's my other tip about doing volunteer work. I used to say to the girls at Breakthrough or, or Breast Cancer now as it is, don't have me making cups of tea and cakes because they'll be rubbish, no. but have me doing something that I know how to do. Yeah. And um, last week at Mindful Man, I did a, an, a session, a workshop on a weevolution, which is what I think is going to be very important to everybody who's disrupted and affected at the moment. And that is taking a skill, something we love, something we know, getting others who do the same and can see the same and getting out there and doing good for the people around us, whether they have lost their job, whether they're still in work, because no one knows the shoes that anyone else is wearing Mm -hmm. at the moment. And we can only second guess it and that's bad. So let's get out there. So I, I think on my slide, I won't be able to remember them, but I mentioned that in the last seven years, I've mentored people. I've um, arranged events. I have created new things. I've changed things that exist. I've been a director. I mean, the lady who was the brilliant director for Manx Gateway Drama Group was taken ill before probably our biggest production. And she had to go off and she suggested I took over and actually directed the production. And that probably is the most difficult thing that I've done in the last 10 years. Um, But it was a lot of hard work and it was brilliant and amazing. Mm. Um, But there are many, many ways to volunteer just make the decision to do it and do it around something if it's the environment do it around the environment if it's young people do it around young people and if, i'd imagine well there is a lot of opportunities on the island totally where community as totally well. see the impact pretty quickly as huge well. impact yeah. and you also start to feel part of something bigger than you yeah. which is a flipping nice feeling to have at the moment when yeah. every single day you think what now i mean i i sort of thought thought this morning i wanted to have a phrase for where we are and i'm calling it the theater of uncertainty yeah. i just thought of that this morning because we have no, every single day we get up. I, I did a post last week on LinkedIn, the most popular video post I've ever done. And I called it, is it Groundhog Day? And it isn't Groundhog Day because on Groundhog Day, the day was the same every day, but we get up every morning and we think, what's it going to be today? Yeah. So just to finish off, because I know, I know we yeah. can chat for hours. Yeah. If you had to pick or pick two books, one that changed your life and you yeah. feel may, may change other people's yeah. lives, what book would you recommend? be very hard for me not to pick Mindset by Carol Dweck for that Um, because that is a book that taught me that there are two mindsets in the world, a fixed and a growth mindset. It made me realise that I've got a massive growth mindset but it equally made me realise and it's helped me realise as I've coached on the Isle of Man that a lot of people on the Isle of Man have a fixed mindset and what does that mean? It means you're a specialist and an expert and you know something and you dig your trench very very deep in what you know but what I am concerned about for people who are specialists in the world is that the sky is on fire and there's no point in you having a very deep trench and that's the easiest way I can put it and actually and you can all change I I am married to a man 35 years I've been married to him and for about 28 of those he had a fixed mindset my husband and only when I read this book did I really realize it And he is in a a field of work with the mind and energy now. And he has grown his own mindset over the last seven years. And we can do it. We can do it. But of course, when I work with the startups, they are starting out quite a lot like very good raw material. And also in the modern world with podcasts and online, they've learned so much new stuff. The most important thing is when you fall over or when you feel that F word, um, the F-A-I-L word that I don't want to say because I don't don't like it in my vocabulary, you get up again and you think, oh, 
was I meant to do that? Could I have done it better? So you either don't do it again or you do it better the next time. And then a second book, maybe just a favourite book. Maybe it's something that you just read in your downtime. Wow, my favourite book. Well, I've I've got a few, but I always say my favourite. Asking me for a favourite, anything (laughs) is very hard. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for my what would be a massive favourite of mine, and it isn't a book. It's the complete works of Shakespeare, because I love Shakespeare. I love the theatre, but most of all, I love that everything you ever want to learn about human nature is in the works of Shakespeare. So that's why I pick it. I know every single story ever told is in there as well. Yeah, but I, I often put books that I chat to guests on my list, but I'm not sure I can, I'd be able to get through Shakespeare, so I might have to skip that one. Yeah. Uh, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to do that? Um, well, I, I have a website, carolglovercoaching.com, and then I'm very active on um, LinkedIn in particular, Facebook and Insta, and that's at carolglovercoaching. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us oh, today. Oh, thanks, Carol's Martin. Been very insightful. I appreciate your time. Pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone.